Well, after one episode, my wife Kathy and I were addicted to the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer. Who's seen it? Have you all watched that thing? We stayed up later than we should have on more than one night so that we could watch all 10 episodes. This show is hot. One article said that it has made its way into every corner of our popular culture. The show is about a man named Steve Avery, who after spending 18 years in prison was released when DNA evidence proved that he had not committed the crime. The DNA evidence proved also that the man who should have been suspected at the beginning when the crime was committed, who the police should have investigated but did not, he was guilty. But at that point, he was already in prison for committing the same crime against someone else. After 18 years, Steve Avery gets out. He's out of jail for a couple of years. And his case against the state of Wisconsin for wrongful imprisonment is really taking shape going his way when suddenly Steve Avery is accused of another crime, murder. His case goes away. You're going to have to watch the series to know what happens. I don't want to spoil it for you. But, but I warn you, seriously, you are going to have this visceral reaction to what you see as you walk through this quote-unquote judicial process. You're going to be upset. You're going to be troubled by all the injustices that you witness. And I don't want to be overly dramatic. I'm not dramatic. But sometimes as you watch, you just have this feeling that you're a little bit afraid to live in a place that has a system in place like this that can be so unjust. But then you realize, as bad as this system can be, it's so much better than other systems in the world. And suddenly you just give up in despair. You have this overall feeling of helplessness and frustration, longing for justice. Where can justice be found? Well, here's our opportunity. Where can people find justice? Only one place. Only with God who is right and just in all he does and in all his ways. That's where our hope lies. And that's where the hope of our world lies, in a just God. And it is as such that you and I must present him to the world. This morning, we're returning to Deuteronomy. What say you to this? (laughs) That wasn't heartfelt. We did take a break for the Advent season, but but today we're, we're coming back, and we need to remember this. You and I, together, as Redeemer Presbyterian Church, are a what? Family on mission together, right? We're family on mission together. That's who we are. And we as a family on mission together, we have this hope. You and I together, I know that we hope this. We hope that we will make a difference in this place, in our world, for Jesus' sake. And it's because of who we are and because of this hope that we have spent two years, two and a half years in the book of Deuteronomy, praying that God will use the word as he used it in ancient Israel to prepare them to live in the land, so he will do among us. Psalm 115 says this, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. 
God has entrusted the earth to us, to our care. He has entrusted his name to us. He has entrusted his reputation to us. He has entrusted the gospel to us. Look down at your hands. Look at them, really, honestly. Look at them. This is where God has placed the care of the gospel. It's where God has placed his reputation as the one who ordained the gospel. This is by God's choice. He could have done it a different way, but he did not. According to scripture, he has entrusted this message to us. And so we have to ask how well we are keeping that trust. How accurately are you as an individual and we as a church portraying God as a just God? We can't get this one wrong. God's justice. It's what the world loves to say that God is not. He is not a just God. How could he be? And the world look as it does. So we've got to understand God's justice what it is, and why he demands it. We've got to be just people, and we've got to give others hope in a just God. That's what I hope will result as we come to God's word this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn there. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When men have a dispute, they are to take it to court, and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make him lie down and have him flogged in in his presence with the number of lashes his crime deserves. But he must not give him more than 40 lashes, If he is flogged more than that, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it is truth. And as we read it and study it, we can know your truth as you proclaim it to be. So I pray now that you would be with us as we come to your word. Teach us. Help us know what it means to have you as a just God and to live as just people. Father, if you accomplish that in us and through us this morning, it will be a great thing. So we trust you to do that in us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And, and, and this is not related to the sermon, but I've got to tell you all this. I, I was whispering to Kurt as he prayed. I said, did you read my notes? He said, no, how in the world? Kurt, did you know I was preaching on justice? Look what your bulletin says. Chapter 25 of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of stuff in chapter 25. This is the Spirit of God, I'm telling you. He wants us to get the point this morning. It's amazing. All right, let's get to it. Deuteronomy chapter 25. The verses we've read, they're not difficult to understand. They're actually very straightforward, and they're very simple. God is a just God, and he desires his people to be just people. God desires that the innocent go free and that the guilty be punished. That's God's judgment. Now think of of what Moses has already experienced as he speaks these words to the people gathered on the plains of Moab. In one of the most dramatic moments of his life, 
in one of the most dramatic moments in Scripture, or really in human history, God calls Moses to come back up on Mount Sinai because he's going to give him again the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone that Moses had broken. And so Moses rose early in the morning, and he went up to the mountain. Now, get this. Amazing. And the Lord descended and stood in the cloud with Moses and there declared this truth about himself. Moses didn't have a vision. Moses didn't have a dream. There was no intermediary. God himself is speaking to Moses. And this is what God declares about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's what God declares about himself. He is a God of compassion. He is a gracious God, a loving God, a forgiving God. But none of those characteristics preclude God from also being a just God, unwilling to let the guilty go unpunished. This is ground zero truth for us. This is the truth from which you and I have to interpret every situation of our life. Where there is injustice, it cannot be laid at the feet of God. Take that as a principle. Where there is injustice in the world, it cannot be laid at the feet of God. Injustice will never find its source with God. And if we ever conclude that it does, if the world ever concludes that it does, then we know that immediately we need to begin looking for what we are misunderstanding, what we are misinterpreting about life and the circumstances in which we find ourselves. God is a just God and requires that people who represent Him on earth be just people. And so what does He do in these verses? He helps us. He helps on a very practical level know how we can be just. First, as we look in this verse, these verses, we see that court cases have to be decided by multiple judges. Because see, the, the perspective and the prejudices of one judge may not allow him to arrive at, his, at, at a just decision. But if you get a group of judges together, they're is a greater likelihood that justice will be reached. And that's what God seeks, justice. Secondly, if judges find a person guilty, the judges must carry out the prescribed punishment. Think of how easy it might be to knowingly and wrongly convict a person and sentence that person and then wash your hands of carrying out the punishment. You leave the dirty work to someone else. Few people could actually preside over, watch the beating of a person that they knew was absolutely innocent. And this is the point where justice failed Jesus. Twice, Pilate said, he's innocent. Two times, this man is innocent. I find no fault in him. That was his verdict. 
But as we know, the mob demanded Jesus' death. So Pilate, in the grossest miscarriage of justice in human history, turned Jesus over to be crucified. And then what did Pilate do? He dramatically, in front of the people, took water and washed his hands and declared, I am innocent of this man's blood. So I wonder if Pilate would have decided differently if he was the one required to administer the scourging with the cat of nine tails. I wonder if Pilate would have decided differently if he had been the one required to press the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. I wonder if Pilate would have decided differently if he had been the one required to hammer the nails in Jesus' hands and his feet. I wonder if Pilate would have decided differently if he did not have lowly Roman soldiers to call on to do the gruesome work. He may not have condemned Jesus to death. I don't want to belittle Jesus' crucifixion or devalue his suffering and pain on the cross. When I say this on a practical level for you and me, we often crucify people with our words every day. Scripture says that our tongues have the power of life or death. So we judge people and we condemn people with our words. And so I wonder how our words would change if we had to speak them in the presence of the person we so freely and easily judge and degrade behind their backs. It's not just. It's not right. I wonder how our words would change if we had to bear witness to how destructive they can be and be held accountable for them. Perhaps we would withhold some of those words. See, God's heart is to ensure justice. And so here, the judges must participate in and carry out the verdict that they pass down. Thirdly, to ensure justice, God says that the punishment must fit the crime. Look in verse 2. The guilty must be flogged with the number of lashes his crime deserves. See, the punishment cannot be excessive because that would defeat the purpose of the trial and the just verdict and the punishment itself because God has a purpose for the punishment. And that's what we really need to understand this morning. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this particular aspect of these verses. Look again in verse 3. If he is flogged more than the number of lashes his crime deserves, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. Now notice this. The person who sins, the person who is found guilty, the person who is to be beaten is called here what? Your brother. This person is part of the covenant community. He was a part of that community before he committed the crime. He will remain a part of the covenant community after he is punished. His just and fair punishment simply leads to his restoration to the covenant community. His punishment simply leads to his restoration to the covenant community. His sin... His crime, 
does not decrease his value. It just makes him human. And so God tells his people his dignity must be preserved. He cannot be degraded, dishonored, treated with contempt by the community because God himself does not treat the man that way. God does not cut him off. And so here's the gospel for us in Deuteronomy. People will make mistakes. People will sin. People will fail you. You will make mistakes. You will sin. You will fail people. And so will I. But that does not mean that they are to be cut off. That we are to be cut off. Tossed aside as those who have no value. As those who are beyond rescue. As those who are beyond redemption. But here's the problem left on our own. We, even as believers, that's the judgment we make. We are so hard on people. Are we hard on people? I am. Quick to judge. Quick to shun. Slow to forgive. Slow to restore. But that's what God requires of us. The guilty is still a brother, still part of the covenant community. He still has value. And after his punishment, he must be able to be restored with dignity to that covenant community. Repentance, redemption, restoration. Repentance, redemption, restoration. Let's say that because if you go away with nothing else, it's been a good day. Redemption, no! (laughs) Repentance, redemption, restoration. One more time. Repentance, redemption, restoration. This is the purpose of God's justice. And it is the explanation For the cross. God cannot be a holy God. God cannot be true and faithful to his word, even the word that he spoke to Moses on the mountain, and let the guilty go unpunished. And when God looks throughout human history from its very beginning, from Adam and Eve, his eye can rest on only one person who was truly innocent, and that is Jesus Christ. The only one. Every other person throughout human history, including you and me. All of us are guilty before the Lord. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are guilty, and the guilty must be punished. And that is what is so breathtaking about the cross. What? Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing. You, Jesus, the perfect one, the totally innocent one, take the punishment I deserve so that my sin can be taken away and so that I might be redeemed. You, Lord, take my sin upon yourself and give to me the perfect righteousness that your perfectly innocent life attained for you. When I repent of my sins and embrace you by faith, yes, this is God's justice for the purpose of repentance, redemption, and restoration. And these are the realities that are accomplished by the justice of God. What are you and I seeking to accomplish 
and our judgment of others. Why do we seek justice? For what purpose? Punishment alone? Because we can't stand to see people get away with it? Or because we long to see their repentance, their redemption, and their restoration? See, we have to have God's heart in this matter. And our culture has got to see you and me. Got to see us together, rightly reflecting this aspect of God's character. God's justice, His punishment, His discipline is not motivated by cruelty or harshness or vindictiveness. All those characteristics sometimes mark our judgments. Listen, if God were after our destruction, if God were after the destruction of the world, what an easy thing that would be for him to accomplish. Seriously. With his word, he spoke creation into being. With his word, he could just as easily destroy it. That's not what God is about in what he does in our lives. God is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's goal. So let's get, let's get God's heart on this. His justice, His judgment, His discipline, and how they work together. Hebrews 12.5 My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. 1 Corinthians 11.32 Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. See, if God left us to our sin, if He left us in our sin, if God did not get our attention, your attention, and my attention through discipline, we may, we may never repent. And if we never repent and believe the gospel, we will be condemned. That's bad news, isn't it? Amen. The good news is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so God's judgment is not punitive. It's meant to purify us. God delights Not in destroying us, but in saving us. And that God gets the glory because he captures rebel hearts like yours and mine. And he makes those hearts obedient to him. And he reworks them and restores them and renews us in that kind of power. To do that kind of work in us, God's glory is revealed. Repentance, redemption, restoration. That's what God's after in his just discipline. And it must be what we're after as well. Now I'm going to read another passage. This is from 1 Corinthians 5. And it describes a very real church and a very real situation in a very real church. Paul writes this. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church 
is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. You must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Wow. So here is a description of a church that really has no compassion because it will not discipline. They know about this man's sin, but apparently this church has adopted the, well, let's just live and let live attitude. It isn't any of our business. It isn't our place to judge, but it is. What the man is doing is sinful. And Paul calls on the church to step in and act on his behalf. Rescue him. Love this man enough to not allow him to keep sinning against God. Love his soul enough to get him to repent. And that's what Paul means by turning him over to Satan. We're like, you know, what a terrible thing to say. It just means this. Believers, that's the kingdom of God. And people who aren't in the kingdom of God are in the kingdom of Satan. So Paul's saying... Let that man dwell there for a while. Withhold from him the loving and the joyful and the peaceful fellowship of being with other believers. Withhold from him that soul-strengthening grace of the Lord's Supper. Withhold from him the preaching of the Word and perhaps his soul will so long for what's been cut off that he will repent. Perhaps his desire for Jesus and for Jesus' people will be greater than his desire to sin. And he will repent and return to the Lord and return to the Lord's people. It's a great mercy and compassion to judge this sinning man in this way. It demonstrates great love for his soul. Now here's the issue for us. How are we going to carry it out? (laughs) Because, you know, we can do it in a lot of different ways. And some of them are not very nice. Well, they're not, Jim, and there's some church-damaged people here. That's the reality. So, once again, we go to God's Word. How are we to carry out discipline like this? Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Gentleness, not anger. Gentleness, not anger. James 5.19 My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You can't let that person go. Not if you love them. Not if you love their soul. You cannot say to them, well, it's not my place to judge. You're not making the judgment. God is. God has told us in His Word, thou shalt not. So when we do what God says, thou shalt not, We're not judging. 
God is making the judgment. God is the one who has said it is wrong. We've got to love people enough. We've got to love people enough to say you are out of line with God's truth. One last passage. This one's from Jesus. Luke 17. Jesus says, There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourself. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Now this is Jesus talking. Rebuke the sinful behavior in the hope of repentance. And when there is repentance, forgive. Rebuke, repent, forgive, restore. Rebuke, repent, forgive, restore. This is the pattern of our lives. It's the way we're to, to, to live out the, our life, what the world needs to see when they look at us because this process is a picture of the gospel. But it isn't easy. Sometimes I laugh when I'm preparing because I create these pictures in my head about what's going on. So here's my picture. Jesus is talking to these disciples. And then I laugh when I, I, I look at... At their answer, Jesus says to, you know, to rebuke these people and to forgive them. And what do the disciples respond? This is their response. Lord, increase our faith. It's like, what? How are we supposed to, to live like this? Their law said, well, just forgive three times a day. And Jesus saying, you got to forgive seven times a day. They're like, Lord, we can't live this way unless you increase our faith. How can we live this way? Well, until you and I can say with the Apostle Paul, the former Christ hater, the Christian persecutor, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Until you and I, all of us in this room, realize that like the man found guilty here in Deuteronomy, we deserve punishment. Until we in great humility realize that Jesus has taken our punishment for us, until we realize that we are what we are, not by our own goodness, not by our own efforts. We are going to be harsh. We're going to be demanding. We're going to be judgmental on everyone around us. But that's not what we want to present to one another or to the community or to the culture that's watching us. That's not how we will ever make a difference for Jesus' sake. But when we realize that we are what we are only because of the grace of God to us, then comes the love and the gentleness and the compassion and the mercy. We would be nothing. We would stand in no place of judgment were it not for the grace of God in our lives. It takes faith to live this way to be involved in people's lives in this way when it's so much easier to ignore. It is. To live and let live. 
not to challenge one another to live by God's truth. I don't know how you all live because I'm the preacher. I'm the last to find out. Always. But you all know how each other live. You know what you do. Do you challenge people to live according to God's truth? Do you have faith to believe what we know to be true? That God forgives, God redeems, God restores? By faith, we believe that and we treat other people with dignity, knowing that they, like us, are not beyond God's reach or God's forgiveness. By faith, we know that God does not count us out because of one mistake. That's the gospel. Given power by the cross of Christ, God's perfect justice is satisfied. The guilty aren't going unpunished. Christ has taken the punishment for us so that we might be, can be, redeemed and restored to God. Let's be careful to reflect God's justice to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a just God. The only place we will ever find true justice is before you. And so we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us through Christ. You're just, you're holy. You cannot let sin go unpunished. And so you came to earth in flesh to die on the cross for us to satisfy your holy judgment, your holy justice. Now the guilty do not go free. Instead, the punishment we deserve is placed on Christ. So amazing, Lord. And the reality of it ought to make us humble people overwhelmed people, gracious people, loving people. Lord, I pray that you will help us love one another enough to speak truth into each other's lives. Lord, I pray that you will dispel it as a lie that we should not be involved with one another, that we should watch our brothers and sisters just walk this path of sin and do nothing to reach out to them, to turn them from their sin, to call them to truth. Lord, we're not their judge. You're their judge. But you give us your word to tell tell us how it is that we ought to live. And so help us love one another enough to speak truth into each other's lives. Help us to believe the truth, Lord, that with you there is forgiveness. When we repent of our sins, you forgive. You redeem, you restore us. And so we thank you and we praise you for that. And Lord, as we turn our faces outward from ourselves to this community, to our culture, they need to know you for who you are. A just God. But in your justice, you are so loving. Because of your love, you made payment for our sin. Help us present that to the world. Lord, the beauty of the gospel people knew you for who you are, Lord, they would never hate you. They would never rail against you. They would love you and embrace you. 
So Lord, use us to accomplish that goal in their lives. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.